Confucius advised us to study the past if you would define the future. And therefore, my guest this week is perfectly placed to help guide us in such uncertain times. Dan Court is Mr. History. He spent 10 years making historical documentaries before turning his talents to broadcasting them. He is now Vice President Programming at NE Networks UK, where he leads a team responsible for sourcing and scheduling all content for A&E's UK portfolio of channels, including the newly rebranded Sky History. So if anyone can help us to use the past to define the future, Dan's the man. Hi Dan, welcome to the podcast. Good to have Thanks, you on Thanks Danny, good to be here. My question to you is, if you could be any historical figure, who would that be? Gosh, what a, what a, what a, what a fascinating um, question. I think it's a slightly peculiar answer, I suspect, but to cut a long story short, the person that I'd be really interested to be would be Robert McNamara, who was uh, JFK's Secretary of State for Defence. I'm fascinated by McNamara. Errol Morris made a brilliant film called The, the Fog, Fog of, of War Fog of about War. him and about his, what he came to realise in his um, career. But I think it, you know, he was the youngest, I think, ever president of the Ford Motor Company, and he was plucked from the private sector by JFK, who wanted the sort of brightest and the best. He sort of tried to run Department of Defence at a critical period of the Cold War, almost like the sort of Ford Motor Company. And then, of course, he got drawn in further and further into the quagmire of Vietnam. And he then eventually, you know, fell out with LBJ, Lyndon Johnson. And clearly later in life had this sort of source of huge regret and hence the fog of war. And, and you know, but I, I just found him a very sympathetic and interesting character and, and hugely talented. So I think that if I could be anyone, it would be um, Bob McNamara. Excellent choice. I actually sold The Fog of War to uh, the BBC. That was a Sony Pictures Classics movie. Yeah, so. I think it's absolutely fab- I think it's a fabulous film. I think, you know, I mean, Errol Morris, of course, is a, is a brilliant filmmaker. Well, it's, a, it's another point of crossover for us because uh, I was looking through uh, your background. And I noticed that you started out as a producer making documentaries back in the 3BM days. And it turns out that we had a documentary in common called World War One in Colour, which was um, a show that I was involved in on the Sony side, and you helped to produce. And mm. I think it's just, it'd be really interesting to just very briefly chart your path, because you were a producer of documentaries and then moved over to the broadcast side. And that's a, just, it's a very interesting career path. I always knew that I wanted to be in TV. Um, right from an early age. And, and the reason that I knew that was because I grew up largely in a household which didn't have a television. My mother was uh, an educationalist. She was a supply teacher. And she got it into her head that it in some way was detrimental to our educational development to be constantly watching TV. And she wanted us to have more lively discussions around the dinner table. So she got rid of it. And my father and I used to have to go and hire a television for sort of special occasions. So if there was an Olympics or a royal wedding, or I remember the discovery of the Titanic in 1985 by Bob Ballard, we would beat a familiar road to the television hire shop in Norwich. And we would hire a television for that sort of period of time. So I was really transfixed by it. It it became a sort of a really uh, exotic, exciting medium. And when I used to go around to friends' houses, I would plonk myself in front of it, uh, much to their chagrin, and just watch 
continuously. So I always had a fascination for it. I studied first at Nottingham University and then I did a master's in, in Slavonic and Soviet and Eastern European studies at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies, London University. And I became a particular sort of devotee and uh, fan of sort of Soviet politics and history. So that was my area, if you like, of specialism. And I was lucky enough when I uh, came out from doing my master's to be introduced to a, uh, uh, an independent television producer, uh, a man called Malcolm Brinkworth at uh, Touch Productions. And he, he needed somebody to go over to the Soviet Union, go over to Russia, go to Moscow and to do some research for a, a special that he was making, a dispatches special on Robert Maxwell. And that was my sort of entree. The magical nature of TV for me um, has never really died from that moment. I was completely transfixed by the process, the whole process of gathering of information and then the way in which that information was transposed into interviews and to narrative. Um, it was just brilliant. And, um, and then I'd, we ended up doing another sort of slightly current affairs documentary for Inside Story. Steve Hewlett was the commissioning editor and it was on junior doctors and pressures they were under. Uh, and and uh, again, I, I just found it the most absorbing and fascinating process. And from there, I sort of graduated from a researcher to assistant producer to producer, director. Uh, effectively, a new company was formed called 3BM Television. And I began working very closely with a guy called Simon Burfan, who in, in many ways was my mentor and um, is one of, I think, one of the most brilliant people working in television in terms of his ability to both write and produce and direct and, and I, I sort of learned everything I knew really from Simon and we made a number of secret histories for 3BM, um, Harold Wilson, the final years um, about his 74 to 76 administration. We did a series of um, secret histories on the sort of criminal fraternity, which I absolutely loved, um, which was Lords of the Underworld about Bob Boothby and the craze. We did the Great Train Robbery and we did a, a film called The Pawn King, The Stripper and the Bent Coppers, which was all about how the sort of corruption of Soho and the way in which the police and some of the Soho pawn barons worked hand in glove. Uh, in those days. So I, I began directing and I ended up that the sort of one of the really formative pieces I did was um, a series called Age of Terror. Series producer was John Blair, who, who'd won an Oscar for Anne Frank Remembered, very sort of eminent uh, person. I very much enjoyed working with him. And I directed episode three of that, which was called In the Name of God. And that took me to the Middle East and it took me to um, Jordan and to Syria and the Lebanon. And fascinating and it was for discovery and um i ended up uh, on the back of that series discovery invited me in to uh, be there if you like sort of original content person in the uk and that got me over onto the broadcasting side so it was 10 years in production effectively and then i started uh, in 2005 i started on the broadcasting end and i got to appreciate the industry from a very different side and i spent 10 years at discovery working my way up uh, to see senior vice president of uh, programming and ended up sort of running channels and launching channels and things. But I've never sort of forgotten what it's like to be a producer. And I think that that when you're on the commissioning side, when you're on the broadcasting side, it's very important to remember the unique pressures and, um, you know, possibilities of production so that you really you get the very best from your suppliers. And that's um, that's what I'm doing now at um, history and um, thoroughly enjoying myself. What were the big learnings about moving from the production side and running a business side into uh, the broadcaster side? One of the big things it involved is 
having a more strategic mindset. I mean, when you're on the other side, you are, you're looking at a slate of content across a year. You're looking on a range of genre and a range of brands, and you're planning the year out in a, in a rather more strategic way. You know, the process of sort of running a production company is very much, you know, how can you build your turnover? How can you build your specialism? How can you become known for a particular type of specialist factual output and that was very much what we tried to do at, at 3bm you know we were we were fixed on making very interesting films but growing the company from you know fr- obviously from nothing up to a turnover of three million and then trying to build uh, strands and franchises and so you know we did a lot of limited series but the big a big breakthrough came when we we came up with a series called zero hour which was based on the um the, the sort of drama 24 and it was the idea of sort of ticking down a, you know um, an hour of a critical event and that that was sort of quite transformative for us as a company because we not only it was not only a returning format but it was something that we owned rights in and therefore we you could actually make a bit of money out of it when you're in a, a broadcaster and particularly i think an american-owned broadcaster you're very much more fixated on the on the sort of wider strategic considerations and the kind of product that will fit into the brand patina but will also give you a sort of an edge so what have been the lockdown challenges for you that probably cuts across things like transmission what the revenue and income model looks like securing the programming pipeline scheduling issues i mean presumably all of these elements have had an enormous shock to the system I mean, they have. I think we're lucky as a business at A&E Networks that we, we have a healthy sort of subscription element to our business as well as uh, advertising. So it means that we're not as exposed maybe as some others. I think, honestly, the, the, the biggest challenge has just been the, the fact that the sort of the creative end of things has been much more difficult to achieve just because there has not been, you know, shooting and not been production in the, in the same way. And, and the thing that is the most fun whether whether at a producer or a broadcaster are those creative moments those creative coming together and catalysts and all of a sudden getting involved in a project so that has been i think the the the, it's been the hiatus in production and the creative process that's been the trickiest thing i think to manage and i'm very relieved that we're we're sort of getting out of it you know we had some interesting things going on so we make this series called forge with steel which is a, a companion piece to forged in forged in fire and it's with a youtuber called alex Steele, uh, and he used to um, he used to live in norwich and he's now moved to montana and he's he was busy in his forge and sending us lots of stuff which was great and just to see even though there was this lockdown you know there's still sort of there's still alec beavering away in his forge and contributing pieces that we've made into a series um forge with steel season two which is a which is a great fun series and and so that was good and then we had another team that was doing a world war ii piece for us for the 75th uh, anniversary of the day called race to victory uh, which was cic media and they were doing a nice job and again because it was archived largely archive based uh, they were able to get on with it and you mentioned having that dual income stream and that's mm. um, that's a really interesting point and particularly relevant because earlier on in the year you rebranded uh, one of mm. the channels to Sky History. And mm. so that very much puts you as very close partners joined at the hip with your platform partners. Mm. And I would have thought 
in hindsight, that turned out to be a tremendously <laughs> valuable and smart thing to do given subsequent events. And, and I'm sure in the long term as well. Is that something that more and more third party channels are going to have to think about doing, do you think? Well, I think, I think it's been brilliant for us. I think you're right. I mean, the timing couldn't have been better. In, in a world of consolidation and where sort of big is beautiful, it's wonderful to have such a, you know, such a sort of heavyweight commercial and creative partner with us. What I, I, I can't see any change to this sort of pattern of consolidation of media, you know, content creators and, and broadcast and all the rest of it. I just think that that in, 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 this, in this particular world, that makes sense. So yes, I think that there will be, I think that, that other brands may well be looking at closer alliances. I, I, you know, I'm just very relieved we got ours when we did. It, it does feel like that there are these trends and I think there are trends in the, the wider economy that TV is a part of. So if I think about retail, for example, manufacturers and producers sold to their customers through retailers and the landlords that own the shops and between them they brought the customers in and said we've got lots of customers so let us be your route in and, and we'll charge a retail price and you had the rise of the shopping malls which in a way are a little bit like pay tv platforms that aggregate lots of people and provide lots mm. of services and now the malls are all going bust and people are no longer going to the high street the high street is changing and that's where you, you now start to see the, on, the growth of online shopping. And that, in a way, is a little bit like this whole direct-to-consumer approach. Mm. And so is that the kind of evolution? And I think it's you know, interesting in the context of now being so aligned with the mall owner, if you like, or the, 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 the high street uh, retailer. Do you, do you see that this, there's this inexorable move to direct-to-consumer and, and how does that work for a pay TV operator like you guys, or predominantly pay TV operators? Yeah, I think that's. I think it's interesting. I think the the um, analogy is interesting. I think the um, what works so well in the retail business, and the reason that aggregators maybe haven't, you know, obviously have not fared as well as they might, like shopping malls. Although some shopping malls, you know, Westfield, you know, they ha there are those that have bucked the trend. But I think you're right. It's, uh, you know, the idea of cutting out the middleman or middle person and, and going direct to consumer is a very pervasive and persuasive one uh, and, and appealing. I think that um, what it gives you in retail is huge convenience. And that's what it's born out of. And I think that's what Amazon have done brilliantly is just the sort of, they take every bit of pain out of the whole shopping experience and i think it's slightly different with media because i think that there are two things i think firstly that the the sheer volume of choice uh, of product that there is in media means that i think there's very much a role for a content aggregator who can be almost the sort of kite mark of quality and tell you that this is the stuff you should be watching because it's the right you know this is the right stuff so what aggregators i think can bring is is in a way in the media space they do take the pain out of the process and they can say a you know we filtered this for quality we filtered this for brand um and you will find something here and you know that so so they provide the convenience factor that if you like in the retail market the likes of amazon do you know so i think so i think it, I, I do think there is a natural groundswell towards direct to consumer and i think for us and other organizations it poses some interesting questions but at the same time i think in media there is also a huge need for trusted content curation and aggregating brands 
that you know can also fulfill that role of, of bringing it all together there is definitely a huge appetite and room for you know for people just wanting to sit down and you know have have choices presented to them that they can then sort of take advantage of in the simplest way possible that's where i think that you know things like the epg and platforms and all the rest of it content aggregators will be much longer lived than anybody has predicted I love the fact that we're referring to the EPG as some kind of um, old school (laughs) (laughs) technology. I remember (laughs) when I was growing up, when I used to go and stay with my grandparents, my grandfather used to say, uh, can you turn the television over to number nine? And we we had a dial. I had to turn, I was the remote control and uh, I would go and turn it and the you twist it around to number nine. Yeah. Right. Uh, if all young people ask your parents what this is, what this, or grandparents maybe, um, what what this involves. So now uh, to think back to uh, or talk about the EPG as this uh, sort of you know ancient technology. I mean, That's right. It is amazing. We're, it's, yeah, it's amazing we're getting on, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. It's really interesting to get your thoughts on trends in um, in documentary programming. When I think about how documentaries are evolving, um, I think about the popularity of sports documentaries, for example. That's something mm. that's really come to the fore, the move from traditional linear storytelling to contextual narratives that flip between the past and the present. Factual entertainment now becoming a big part of documentaries, uh, shows that brings the, the past to life. So in terms of the entertainment side, why does everyone hate the English, which is one of your shows? abandoned mm. engineering that brings the past to life not one of your shows um <laughs> wish it so, was you know those are some of them they, there may be many more but i'd be really interested in your thoughts on what you're seeing and, and if you think that there are more evolutions to come i think what's interesting is the enduring qualities of certain things within documentary making that kind of remain as true now as they did yesterday in terms of the power of stories the the power of and the emotion that is conveyed through some of the best documentary making i think what's interesting is the layer of additional styling and sophistication that probably has come in which i find very interesting and engaging so you know when it, when a series on netflix like and excuse for, for for anybody who's easily offended excuse my language but the the, the series don't fuck with cats came along love that example, show for raw tv i mean you just sort of thought well this, this, of course, has all the ingredients we know about, has brilliant characters, has a really sort of something fascinating and, and, and rather deeply peculiar in its midst. But the way in which this sort of network of kind of armchair social media detectives, online detectives have got together and sort of um, made it their mission to solve this case, it, it becomes really something new and different. And, 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 that, and that, I suppose, is not, I mean, not a trend, but just something that I think is um, to be admired and to be applauded. And um, it's quite interesting on, a, on the other, you know, another, another series that's out recently is, is on the Murdochs. And um, of course, there's this massive interest. There's always been a massive interest in the Murdochs, but all the more so because of succession, I think. But just to see how they brought to life um, a story, the story of that dynasty and the way in which um, the Murdoch uh, news gathering and news dissemination has become a sort of such an important part of, of our lives and affected our lives I thought was brilliantly done so 
just in the world of sport, because everybody was talking about it through lockdown, is the last dance. I thought it was brilliant. I think any, any sports fan, any basketball fan, uh, but any general sports fan would love it. But of course, that series doesn't happen unless in that critical season, somebody isn't filming everything that moves and somehow getting this incredible access and, and that's always been true. If you've got that piece of footage, if you've got, you know, if you, if you happen to have got that piece of access, you can do something really powerful. So I suppose that sort of reinforces itself. I think there is amazing ingenuity and sophistication in the way stories are told, but ultimately the fundamental building blocks remain the same. We love Don't Fight With Cats. My son recently dyed his hair blonde and uh, oh, really? we, we did spend a week or so referring to him as Luca Magnotta, which... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just, I thought I was, in, I, was, <laughs> I was in awe of it. So if, if there was a documentary of the last X number of years that you didn't commission, but would have liked to have commissioned, uh, whether it's a one-off or a series, which would be the one that you would point to and say, yeah, I wish that was, that was mine? Well, I think in the world of sort of pure sort of documentary, I think for me anyway, Adam Curtis is the Mayfair set. I sort of thought that that was um, truly amazing, amazing piece of work. The, the other one is probably Kevin McDonald's One Day in September about the 1972. I mean, again, a lot of people would probably have that in their list. And I thought um, the way in which Kevin told that story, which was so shattering and so you know inexplicable was brilliantly done but then in the in the factual entertainment world I, I always remember James May's Toy Stories which I thought was just brilliant you know when he was building scale models building a Meccano bridge in Liverpool or a um, scale scale model of Spitfire a massive scale I thought that was brilliant um, really cleverly done I think one of those probably um, but I wouldn't have minded frankly commissioning Taskmaster I think that's great as well so it's sort of I've got quite eclectic taste but um, yeah one of those very good well, just to finish off, I always ask my guests if they would share their thoughts on a lockdown book, uh, album, film and box set that would sustain them through a, a lockdown should they find themselves within such a thing. So <laughs> if you could share your thoughts on that, we, I'm sure we would love to hear them. At the start of lockdown, like like many other households, I'm sure, I started the third book in Hilary Mantel's uh, trilogy, um, uh, The Mirror and the Light, um, about the um, uh, the life and career of Thomas Cromwell. And um, I just I just think the achievement in producing, you know, Wolf Hall, Bring Up the Bodies, Mirror and the Light, I think are just fantastic. And those those definitely that trilogy of books would definitely sustain me through lockdown music again i got very sort of slightly bizarre and weird eclectic music taste but they did on sky arts they had they reunited the actors and actresses from the film quadrophenia which uh, was a film i i loved and I, I definitely think the who would loom large i think bizarrely in my um in my playlist film i think the one film that i i absolutely absolutely love uh, is a film called get carter um, starring Michael Kay, directed by Mike Hodges. It's set in the Northeast, and uh, it's about a guy going back to try and find out how and why his um, brother was killed. And it's just, I think, Michael Kane's finest hour, and just a brilliant, brilliant film. So yeah, I think um, Get Carter. Very reminiscent and famous for the scene of Red Roberts off Coronation Street being told by Michael Kane, "You're a big man, but you're out of shape. Me, the <laughs> living." 
Exactly right. Exactly right. And finally, a box set. This is slightly dull and predictable, but I think the Sopranos. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing. <laughs> well, Dan Corn, thank you so much for uh, being a guest on the show this week. And thank you for having me. I expect that you'll be off to Brighton on your moped <laughs> at some point over the first weekend to relive those mod- Davis. that yeah. mod era. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I hope so. Cheers. Take care. Thanks, Danny.